Greetings and blessings, saints. Welcome to the Revelation Decoded Podcast. I'm your host and teacher, Gil Maza. We are going through an epic study through the book of Revelation, unlike any you might have heard before. Did the first century Christians understand the book of Revelation when it was first written by the Apostle John? You bet. They understood it and acted on it, and therefore they were spared the greatest tribulation that could ever come upon the Jewish people and the cataclysmic end of the Old Covenant. Think you know the book of Revelation? Come and see. Well, welcome to Lesson 8 of Revelation Decoded. Let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll, hit the, we'll hit the ground running. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy tonight, Father, and uh, especially during these times that you uh, give us the peace and your strength and your, and your mercy, Lord, right now. Uh, help us to ease our hearts and minds for a moment to be able to gather together and study and grow in the grace and knowledge of our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please, Father, look in on those that are hurt, um, hurting or ill or struggling or uh, dealing with situations, Father, right now beyond their control or more than they can handle and fill them with your Holy Spirit. Lord, fill us all with your Holy Spirit and just bless us in a time of worship and praise and study, Lord, especially in the book of Revelation. We thank you for all you're going to give us and show us and teach us, Lord, tonight. In uh, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're working through the first few verses of Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And if you're wondering why I'm taking my sweet time with it, it's because already in these few verses, it's power-packed. And there's a lot there that I want you to be able to grasp and understand so that when we move forward... A lot of what we're going to be decoding in the book of Revelation will make a lot more sense to you. And tonight, we're going to focus on who is the God of Revelation. You might say to me, well, that's obvious who it is. And it would be to those of us who believe. But today, we're going to break it down a little bit because I don't want to make assumptions and think that we're all on the same page. Uh, I want us to be sure that we know who we're talking about here and what his plan and purpose is because as it begins to unfold there are these things that we have to take with us to keep in mind and be able to decode and continue to learn and have the book of revelation opened up to us even more so than before so it was the reading and revelation of chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 revelation 1 verses 4 and 5 it says john to the seven churches that are in asia grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And that's where we're going to stop in Revelation 1. The first thing we see here is that these first few verses after the introduction to the book to this book read like just about every other epistle written throughout the new testament in this case the book of revelation is most likely a circulating epistle to be read to be copied and then to be passed on to the next church to the next church to the next church which would be in a postal route there in uh, asia minor the epistles of paul of james of peter are handled the same way since they each address several churches. If you'll run to me, run with me just to look at a few of those introductions as we're going in through Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. And again, looking at the introductions to these other epistles, it says, 
Paul, an apostle, not sent by man, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and to all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. See, that was addressed to the churches in Galatia, specifically at that time. If we go to James chapter 1, verse 1, Look how he addresses his letter. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. So now he directs his introduction or salutation to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Why are the twelve tribes dispersed? Well, after Jesus is crucified, the, uh, Christian, the Jews that took off, from Jerusalem and ran all over the place because they were getting persecuted were scattered abroad and so he's addressing them and he begins telling them count consider it all joy my brethren when you encounter various trials and then on and on it goes with the book of James in first Peter 1 you see where he addresses who's he he's addressing in his letter it says Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to whose to those who reside as aliens scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Britannia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So you see, each one is being directed or addressed to the churches, to a particular churches at the time. That doesn't mean that they don't apply to all churches for all time, all throughout the centuries, but you can see here that this is real time, real people, a real historic event happening at a particular time. And he says, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. And he says, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's what they were preaching all over as far far and wide as they could as strongly as possible now in Revelation notice the greeting the greeting of grace and peace grace and peace usually these terms are associated primarily as coming from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ I've given you a lot of those scriptures scriptural introductions that mentioned those things we're going to look at maybe the first three or four okay the first three or four right? starting in Romans chapter 1 verse 7 Romans 1 verse 7 it says to all who are beloved of God in Rome called as Saints grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ the point being as we're going to see is that in their minds only the only true peace the only true uh, grace can come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ from who God is and who Jesus is that's the only true type of grace and peace that we can um, we can experience in Romans 16 20 as he's closing down his letter right the uh, Paul says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Right? The God of peace. In Ephesians 1-2, again, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Peter, and all those other scriptures are gave, I gave you are just to point out the fact that number one, 
they believe that true grace and peace comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But also to show you that this type of salutation, this type of greeting would have been very familiar to all those who were at a synagogue or a church or a home church or a home gathering, a home assembly that would hear right away an epistle being read and would hear grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and would immediately recognize those words and understand those words. And I think that's why John also does the same thing back in Revelation 1. Revelation 1. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And I'll explain the seven spirits. And from Jesus Christ. Now, we're starting to see a little pattern there, right? Of lumping God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit together. And so the idea communicated here is that true and genuine grace for our sins, our wickedness, our flaws and failures can only come from Creator God. From Creator God. In Romans chapter 5, and I'll, just read, I'll read a few verses as I go, but there it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom also have, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still yet helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And I, su I suggest you go back and read the rest of that chapter because it's very encouraging and very strong. And uh, it talks about the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension that will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.7 and again, what does he say here? Now, I'll start at verse 6. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I know personally, in my experience, that the times I've been more stressed out, more lost, more at a loss of what to do or what to say or where to go with a situation has always been because I did not take the time to pray first, to be able to, to consult with God, to receive his grace, receive his peace, receive his wisdom and have him guide me. And a lot of times because I know he's not going to let me do what I want to do. I want to lash out. I want to fight. I want to bite, kick and scream. I want to hurt people. For what maybe because of the way I was hurt, but and I know going to God, He's gonna He's gonna say no, you're not gonna do that, <laughs> you know. So instead of taking comfort in that and taking His peace, I'd rather go out there and do it myself. But what do I gain? Nothing. And so most of the time, it's because I don't consult His grace, His surpassing peace that 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 surpasses all comprehension, because it's hard to believe many times that His peace and His grace can keep us through the worst times we can experience. And even now, with all the frustration and anxiety and angst and confusion, 
It's coming to Him in prayer, coming to Him in praise that's going to calm us down. But a lot of times we don't really want to be calmed down. We want to lash out. We, we don't want to turn the other cheek. We don't want to do what he knows. we know He wants us to do because we feel we're owed or we feel like we have to retaliate or whatever it is. But many times that's probably why we don't immediately come to Him because He's going to ruin everything for us, right? I want to be mad. He doesn't want me. He won't let me stay mad. I want to be bitter and angry, and he doesn't want to let me stay bitter and angry. And it's funny, but it's true. Now, in those days, they needed to hear this. They did need their hearts and minds guarded during those very dangerous and troubled times. Because they were facing persecutions such as they'd never seen before. And they were being chased down. By their own countrymen. And this is the Jews that came to believe in Jesus Christ. Those who became saved. Who became new creations. Who became the church. Were being persecuted by the people they knew very well. By their own neighbors. By people they were familiar with. And the, the leadership of the Sanhedrin. All those things. So they were facing unprecedented, an unprecedented time in their existence and in their lives. And again... It's no different in many ways to what we're seeing today. Not nearly in that scale. No, absolutely not. What they experienced and eventually what it led to was way worse than, than we can even imagine. And we're going to see that as we get go through the pages of Revelation and go through those scriptures. We're going to see just how horrific that time was. So even in times like us, in our time when we feel like it's out of control... And uh, we don't know what's going on or where it's going or where things are headed. We know He is in control. So if we stick with Him, if we stay close to Him, He will take care of us just like He took care of them in those days when Revelation was actually playing out. Now the spiritual principle here is having peace in Christ is supposed to be the character trait of the true believer. In this world, regardless of what's going on around them, when or where or how. In other words, we as disciples of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, right? As the Isaiah passage says, he's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, the Prince of Peace. Okay? But it doesn't seem like a lot of his subjects, a lot of his followers, a lot of the people in his kingdom seem to be enjoying that much peace. Those of us that are a little bit, that have fallen away or are apart or just don't see it, right? Because we're seeing with the eyes of what we think is reality instead of the eyes of faith that tells us he's already gone before us. He's already overcome all this. All we got to do is live within the kingdom to get through it. But it's hard to, when we're looking around. But peace Along with love, love being the greatest of all, the greatest trait of the Christian. That's what marks us as disciples. Peace is supposed to be part of that. And let me ask you, Saint, how is that working out for you guys? How peaceful would you describe it? If you had to go from 1 to 10, 1 being truly at peace, 10 being frantic, where are you at in that spectrum? A lot of us would say probably 5 and up, 6 and up. Some of you, you know, might be, you know, a little bit lower. I don't know. I hope so. I'm trying to keep myself at a, maybe a two to three to four level uh, fluctuating. But sometimes before I even notice it, I'm already back up and, and back up all the way to frantic and maybe a little bit past. 
because I take my eyes off of him and his word as a po- and, and fix my eyes on what I see around me, which is not a good indicator of reality. And now with the advent of the, of the smartphone, with the advent of all the social media, you can build a cocoon around you that you won't even be able to peek outside of it. And that's the world you'll live in. And anything that contradicts that, you will reject out of hand. And we've gotten used to living like that for a long time. So here uh, in Romans 14, verses 16 through 19. Romans 14, verses 16 through 19. And that's once we read these passages, I'll open it up for, for, for uh, discussion. Romans 14, verses 16 through 19. It says... Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ, listen to this, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and building up one to another. Huh. And how's that working out for us? Yeah, we don't do a lot of building up of people on social media or any other place. We tend to tear them down. We tend to want to bend them to our will, to force them to believe what we want to believe, to, you know, passively, aggressively punish people for having a different perspective than you. Uh, trust me, I know. I know. I've re- I've received that, but I'm more often than not, I've been a I've been the one doing that. In Galatians five, verses twenty two to twenty three. Galatians five twenty two to twenty three, and it's you've heard this one before. It says, "But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. Those are the top three: love, joy, and peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness." gentleness, self-control, against such a things there is no law. In other words, uh, there's no law to restrict you from being able to express as much of those things as you want to anybody, okay? And so we see that uh, whether it be a political or cultural persecution, torture and uh, murder in ancient public coliseums, um, Character assassination in society and social media today, it doesn't matter. We are called to be people of peace, to be people of grace, and to exhibit those that fruit of that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you'll say to me probably, well, I'm not having a good time of it. I'm not, it's, it's not easy. Well, that's right. Because that's why we need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us empowers us to do those things even when we don't have it in it within ourselves but i don't know about you but i know exactly why not, uh, the holy spirit doesn't work as much as i'd like him to in my life because again he forces me to <laughs> change my perspective to change the way i look at other people instead of me just wanting to rant and rave and lash out and get what I need, what I think I need, which eventually, when I, th- I never do get it. And the result of, of actions like that are literally that it just turns the ash in my mouth. It just, it's sour, it's bitter. It just burns me inside. It makes me less human. But 
the closer we are to God and the more we seek Him out and the more we say, Lord, I, I, I don't have it in me, but I want to be that person. I want to be that kind of Christian. Help me, let your Holy Spirit help me. And in that, the Holy Spirit will give you, there is no law against that, so He'll give you as much power as you're willing to take to be that kind of Christian. But you have to decide in your heart and in your mind what is keeping you from that? What is making you hold the Holy Spirit at arm's length so that you, you can still do what you want to do and feel justified and feel vindicated, feel like you are in the right when you know you're having to hold the Holy Spirit back? Because if he came in, then you'd have to say, this is wrong, I'm wrong. And we don't like to do that. The Holy Spirit's a mirror, and, and, and what He shows us is our true selves, and we don't like to see that. So in Revelation 5, we see somebody introduced here that is the source of everything we're going to study from this point on in Revelation, right? What we're going to see here next is an identification, an identification of God by John to the entire church of who God is, of who God is. And it's an identification that would not be mistaken or confused by anybody. Again, remember the familiar language he used. Already in their minds, they're hearing another epistle like they heard it from James or, 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 or John, previous ones, or Peter. You know, grace and peace be to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But now he is about to Put things together so that you can make no mistake about the God that's authoring the book of Revelation who actually authored all other 65 books in the Bible and is perfectly consistent all the way through. This is also the reason why we know, we know that we know that the Bible, this book is in complete agreement and harmony with the rest of the scripture. This begins with a description of God that cannot be duplicated or appropriated by any other religion or spiritual construct in the entire history of the planet. This is the one defining mark and pillar of our faith. And we know it as the Holy and Blessed Trinity. The Holy and Blessed Trinity. Remember how he begins in verse 4. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Who is that? Obviously God the Father. Then from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Who is the seventh spirit or the sevenfold spirit? The Holy Spirit. And then he says from Jesus Christ. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. So now we are getting into and, and landing on the solid foundation of of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And just what is the doctrine of the Trinity? I have come to know that I can no longer take it for granted that believers know or understand that the, that the God they're worshiping is Trinity. Okay, because it can be very simple in concept to understand, but it, yet it can also be very complicated as we try to flesh it out. 
The Trinity is the unique and distinctively Christian characterization of the nature of God. It is the distinctly Christian characterization of the nature of God. If you don't arrive to the conclusion that the God of the Bible is a Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, then you are not, and this is very strong language and I'm picking my words carefully, very carefully. But if you do not believe the Trinity, you are not believing in the God of the Holy Bible, of the Scriptures. Because the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, speaks of God and His character as being a Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to try to break it down in simple terms and just walk you through each one as we go. So that you have that solid foundation because again, this is going to be very important as you see God the way His plan plays out and fleshes out through the rest of the book of Revelation. And so the first thing is that the Bible says we have one God, one God in His nature. Deuteronomy 6.4, Deuteronomy 6.4. This is what's whispered to babies from the day they're born by their mothers and fathers in their ear from the time they are born until they can think for themselves. And it's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So in the mind of the Jewish person, of the Hebrew person, when they heard this and they tried to understand the nature of God, they first understood this is one God in nature. One God in nature. But God, that God chooses to manifest himself in three distinct and separate persons. See? And now you're going, ah, see that, Gil? See that? Now it's getting complicated. Well, hang with me. Hang with me. God chooses to manifest himself in three distinct and separate persons. The God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. All three are 100% God. All three are eternal. That is, they have always existed. There was never a time when they came into being or were created. As our Jehovah Witness brothers and sisters would say. That Jesus was a created being. That the Holy Spirit is just a force. He's not a person. He can't think. He can't speak. He can't act. That um, they're all three all powerful. All powerful. And that all three are all knowing. Now, they, again, we can, we can dig into this theologically as deep as you'd like. But I'm keeping it just on the surface for now. And we can get into it later if you'd like. We'll look at three scriptures, whereas I could show you 500, 700 scriptures, if, if wanted to, that teach and confirm this concept throughout the entire Bible. Now, most of us already accept, with not a lot of convincing, that the Father is God. As confirmed beyond doubt all over and over again by Jesus Christ himself, Right? As his father, as God, and throughout the Bible. So I feel like I only need to show you that the Son also is called God. And that the Holy Spirit 
is also called God. I submit to you for the Godhood of Jesus, John 1, verses 1 through 3. John 1, verses 1 through 3. Now, in the Gospels, Matthew is Jesus' Jewish genealogy, his Jewish genealogy. In the book of Luke, it's his Gentile genealogy, right? Mixed in with the Gentiles mixed in. But in the book of John, this is his, his Godhood genealogy, so to speak. And it's very clear. It's very clear. In fact, many other cults, just like the Jehovah Witnesses I mentioned before, have to change the wording of John chapter 1 in many different places so that you don't get the impression or get the idea that Jesus might be God himself. And in John 1 verses 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Okay, so somehow the Word is there next to God. Okay, in the wording. But then look what it says. And the Word, what? Was God. And He was in the beginning with God. All things came, all things came into being through Him. Who? Jesus. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has already come into being. So look at all that is sitting just right there. It's not only saying that Jesus was with God in the beginning, that he was existing from the beginning. It says he is also God and that he's responsible for everything that's ever been made. So right there you see that this can this has to be Jesus has to be God, right? God the Son. From that point, I'll submit to you Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. To discuss the idea of the Holy Spirit. Of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit God? Okay. In Acts 5, verses 3, 3 to 4. Now you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? They got caught lying. They, kept, they, they, they told the church, hey, we gave you all the money, but they kept back part of it. And at that time, so early in the church, that kind of deceit amongst the people had to be dealt with. And it got dealt with by the Holy Spirit severely. So Peter says in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? In other words, you did, nobody forced you to sell it in the first place. You could have kept all the money if you wanted to. Nobody, it wouldn't have been a sin. It wouldn't have been a problem. But you came here after selling your land. You kept part of it for yourself. But then you said, oh, no, no, no. I'm, you know, Here I am sacrificing for the Lord, giving you all of it. Now, that may not seem so severe to you. But this was the beginning, the inauguration of the Christian church. And therefore, foundationally, it had to remain pure. So he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? <laughs> that means you didn't even have to come back and give us the money. But he says, why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Now look, here's the key word. It says, you have not lied to men, but to God. Now look back again, right? In verse 3, Peter says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, down here it says, You have not lied to men, but to God. Therefore, Peter equating God 
to the Holy Spirit as basically in unity, right? You're, if you lie to the Holy Spirit, you're lying to God. Very simple. Now, in Acts 13.2, in Acts 13.2, again, many have tried to say the Holy Spirit is just a force, it's just a power, it's like electricity, you don't see it, it's like the wind, you don't know where it's coming or going, but there's way more to the Holy Spirit than that. In John, in uh, Acts 13, verse 2, it says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. This, look, did, you see, did you hear that? Set apart for me. Here is the Holy Spirit speaking of himself. Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work that I have called them to. Well, who calls us to do ministerial work? God. God gives us the calling. God sets us apart. God is the one that does that. Yet here is the Holy Spirit speaking, saying, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work which I have intended for them to do. And again, those are two very good and strong arguments, but there's a ton more that I really... Unless I was doing just a study on the Trinity, then we can go into all those. I can show you where the, the Holy Spirit uh, created the world, where the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. He said, the Father raised him from the dead. Jesus says, I raised myself from the dead. Holy Spirit says, no, I did it. Well, then who was it? Right? Who was it? And I can list the verse where the Holy Spirit mentioned synonymous with God the Father and Jesus, not to mention that the Holy Spirit has every attribute God has. Many of you, through your studies of the scripture, have come to understand the Holy Spirit is all-powerful. The Holy Spirit is all-knowing. The Holy Spirit was present at the creation of the world, as I'm going to talk about a little bit later. Yes? Sandra has a question. Okay. How the, how the Holy Spirit speak to them? Well, in many ways, sometimes audibly. God did speak audibly to people in, in back in the day, right? He spoke audibly to Moses. He, uh, in many different ways, he spoke through signs or wonders. A lot of times he speaks through us in our spirit, right? Where we get that little tinge, a little tweak in our heart going, oh, you know what? My heart's breaking for that person. Or I really do need to do something for that individual. Or I should feed them. Or I should clothe them. Or I should walk over and see what's wrong with them. Sometimes he speaks into our spirit, into our souls, into our hearts. Sometimes he speaks into our minds in the, in, in the way of God's wisdom. Oh, uh, you know what? I, I can see what, what's happening here, even though anybody else can't. Or he'll speak a word of, you know, of, of awareness to you uh, many times. But in many other practical ways, he speaks to you, Sandra, through a sermon at, on Sunday. How many times have you gone to a, a church on Sunday and the pastor's preaching and you think somehow he saw what you did last night? Or he saw what you did a week ago, Right. And, he, and you're like, whoa, 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 what, what, what's going on here? He's talking directly to me. Or he's dealing with a topic that you've been struggling with particularly, and you think to yourself, oh my gosh, this guy's sermon is all about me. So he speaks to us in various different ways through the Word of God, through our own studies when we're reading something, and all of a sudden something hits us in the face going, oh man, come on, Lord. You know, through the Word of God, through the, in the lives of other people. He will 
prompt somebody else to call you and say, hey, I was thinking about you today and praying. I don't know, understand, but the Lord prompted me to pray for you today. Or, you know, I just felt like I needed to call you. Or, you know, hey, uh, you know what? I, I can see the situation you're going through. Can I offer a little help or a little bit of advice about what you're doing to help you get through it? So God is not limited by anything, anything. He can use social media. He could use the barista at Starbucks to speak a word of encouragement or something into you. You know what I mean? So he uh, speaks in many, many different ways. Can he speak to you audibly and directly? Well, uh, I'm not that holy, so I probably will never hear his voice. But well, some I people... I was just wondering because on the lecture we just read, it says the Holy Spirit said... Yes. Yes. And, and and again, remember, in the birth, in the beginning of the church, or this the church is just starting out. It's a baby, right? It's just gotten instituted. Jesus told the disciples, what you bind on earth, I will bind in heaven. What you loose on earth, I will loose in heaven. In other words, giving them the authority to set to set the church up as they saw fit, led by the Spirit. And so there was times when God spoke to Peter through a vision, right, of, of, a, of a blanket coming down with all kinds of food, of uh, in, sending an angel. So did he speak? Well, if you're asking me if he spoke audibly to them, well, that's what it says. It says that somehow while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Lord spoke to them and said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Yeah. Okay. Okay. There are three things... Every other religion in the planet of the planet in history ever concocted by the fallen mind of humanity has to deny or obliterate for God to for the Bible to exist for for Christianity to stand right for for them to exist and that is the first thing they have to knock down is the authority of the Bible Right? The Bible isn't the Word of God. The Bible's corrupted. The Bible is contradictory and it, it's full of mistakes and it's full of errors and problems. They have to knock down the authority of the Bible. The second thing they need to do to break down Christianity is the nature of God in the Trinity. According to the scriptures, right? Jesus cannot be God according to every other religion on the planet. The Holy Spirit cannot be God, right? The other religion, uh, Allah is one God. Okay, all the other different religions, all the other different cults, the more uh, Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, Christian Science, uh, all these other ones, they deny the basic nature of God so that their religion can exist. Right, every other religion can survive just fine with Christianity, but but Christianity, if you were able to prove that those things weren't what what God says they were then Christianity could not stand. And they can't stand, they can't, they can't stand that, right? They can't stand that, uh, that that's so solid. It's so, it's, uh, you know, the Bible is just so firm and solid on it that uh, they have to tear it down so that they, their religions can exist, what I'm trying to say. I might have misspoke earlier. They can't really exist if the Bible is true, right? And if the Bible is true. So, According, uh, while all the other religions can exist comfortably in the view of the Bible, being as how they are inventions of man and inspirations of demons, all other religions cannot tolerate the Bible or God or Jesus to be who the scriptures claim they are. To be who the scriptures claim they are. So it is the first thing they must do is redefine and mangle the truth of one of these three. 
the authority of the Bible, the nature of God, or the true nature and identity and purpose of Jesus Christ, they have to attack those. They have to redefine them. They can't be who the Bible says they are because then that renders them automatically renders all other faiths and religions false and wrong. Okay, so they have to redefine it. But they always try to start with the Trinity. Why? Because that is how we know the truth of the writings of these apostles. Again, remember that in almost every epistle, the salutation or the blessing, the benediction is God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, through His Spirit, grace and peace, over and over and over and over again. Right? If I say God the Father, God the Son, and Gilmaza, you kind of kind of know something what's wrong with this picture that that third one doesn't gonna work right because you all know <laughs> possibly right so when they're lumped together like that over and over and over in the scriptures in the minds of the early Christians then they know they understand that they're you know hero Israel the Lord your God the Lord is one in nature but in persons he manifests himself in three separate persons all co-equal all co-eternal all powerful but there is a hierarchy within the Godhead and it's a self-imposed one yes it's God the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit it doesn't necessarily mean that it's one's higher than the other but that's how it ends up working that's how the progression goes so John begins with the first person of the Trinity God he who is, who was, and who is to come. Now this connects all the way. This connects God, who he is, and what he says about himself, all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 when he introduces himself after 400 and something years to Moses. He who is, was, and is to come. Now go with me to Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. 3 verses 13 and 14. It says, then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Then Moses said, to, Then I'm sorry, then God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, how does I am compare with or come up with he who is, was, and is to come? Well, if a person is, was, and is still yet future, then he just exists. In other words, he exists outside of time and space. Time is what limits us. Time is what confines us. We can say we had a starting point. We were born. We can say we had a middle point. We lived. We can say we had an ending point. We died. But God just is. He says, I am, I just am. I was not just was or is or will be nothing. I just am. That's why when, Jane, when John says he who is, was, and is to come, it just basically means he is all of those all at once, meaning he just exists. There's no beginning or end to him. There's no start or finish to him. There's no sense of time passing to him. Though when we go to heaven, are we going to know when it's been 5, 10 minutes, 20, 30 minutes? When we go to hell, are we going to know we've been there 5, 10, 20 minutes? No, because there will be no concept of time whatsoever. You just simply will be there. You simply will exist. 
There'll be no passage of time, no concept of the passage of time. It won't exist. We'll be outside of that. We won't be confined by it. Okay, so that's why that connects with God. This communicates that God had no beginning or end, that He is eternal. That is why when God says, I am, this simply means there was never a time when God did not exist and there will never be a time when He ceases to exist. There is a movement within the Christian community, uh, a lot of Christians who, who, who tend to think that somehow God did somehow pop into being at some given time. But that's not the case. Because if he always existed, there's no time when he, when he just never ceased to exist. Now, you can get into the rigmarole about what was the nature of God, and what was God before that, and what was God before that. And you're just going to end up in a cosmic circle, never being able to answer it. The Bible simply says he's always existed and he always will exist. And there was never a time when he did not exist. Okay? And it, well, someday we may know what that means when we get to heaven. Also... This was one of the most powerful and deep-rooted and ingrained aspects of God in the Jewish mindset. There's no past, present, or future with God. It all exists right in front of Him all at once. He sees it all from beginning to end, top to bottom, left to right, side to side. So, there is no detail out of His range or out of His view. There's no possibility He has not seen considered that there's no possibility that he has not seen considered or doesn't understand intimately this is why we are constantly urged and exhorted in our prayers to hand those things over to him and let him answer our prayers his way we see through a glass darkly we see only what is in our immediate reach mentally emotionally and physically and while now whether it's google or wikipedia or your smartphone they that makes us feel like we have the entire knowledge of the universe at our fingertips and to a certain extent we do but we can plainly observe right here that in all the social all the social media and access to almost infinite knowledge has not done one thing not one thing to further humanity when it comes to our fallen, broken, and sinful nature, except now that we're able to share it with everybody globally. Do you catch what I just said there? Even with everything we have that we think we have, even with almost all the knowledge on the planet in our fingertips, all that knowledge, and they used to say, right, that the ignorance was our biggest problem. But with all that knowledge, we have not advanced as human beings one iota. And I submit to you that we, yes, we have not advanced, but we have definitely regressed. We seem to be falling back to more bestial natures, to more of a, more of a bite, kick, survival of the fittest type of nature. Kill or be killed. Attack. Fight. Bite. Kick. Scream. Backbite each other. So humanity has not made any advances in its own nature and in it, how it deals with the planet at all whatsoever. And we have more knowledge than we've ever had in the history of the planet. So, yeah, communication and interaction has been made more possible around the globe. But human nature has not approved one iota. This is why we need God and His Word so much to filter the illusion of our own self-generated, self-imposed,
personal realities for his ultimate reality. That's what prayer does. You know, in the Matrix movie, I don't know if you've all watched it, but the hero of the movie is offered two pills. One to keep them, keep him in the Matrix and keep him safe and comfortable and warm and cozy in the reality generated around him artificially. Or to take the pill that would wake him up to the reality of what the world truly looked like. And it was ugly. It was broken, destroyed, faulty, just a mess, a wreck of humanity. But you could take the pill and have a nice steak and go on with your business. Or you can take a pill and realize everything around you was an illusion. And the reality is outside of that projected artificial reality. And that's what the Bible does. The more we connect with the scriptures, the more we connect in prayer to God, the more we're taking the pill that opens our eyes beyond what's just put, funneled into our eye gates and our ear gates all day and night, day and night, day and night. And a lot of us, one of the biggest illusions that human beings foster and manufacture and nurture is the idea, is the idea that you know what you know and, every, and it's perfectly right and we're right about everything and everything's just like I see it right now. When in truth, all, most of us live in a self-imposed bubble. But the Bible breaks through that. The Bible, prayer, the Word of God breaks through that and helps us to see with the eyes of faith beyond the barriers, right? We're taking the reality pill as opposed to continuously ingesting the manufactured pill that's going to keep us safe, comfy, and warm, and cozy in the realities that we've just built for ourselves, which is just one little dot in the entire scheme of all of it. God's keeping track of that whole thing, every last detail. And we're just one little speck over here trying to pray our way through life, thinking we know all the answers. He's the one that knows all the answers. And that's why when we pray, we say, not my will, but thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because he's seen every all the possibilities. He's seen all the actions and reactions. And he's going to handle your prayer to answer He's going to answer your prayer in a way that benefits everybody in the whole prayer circle. Because he wants all of us saved. He wants everybody around you saved. So when he prays, he's very obnoxious about that, by the way. Isn't he? He's very obnoxious in the way that when we're praying against somebody else or we're praying for somebody who is maligning us or abusing us or whatever else, God works it out to where that person has an opportunity to be saved as well. And that's annoying. Because <laughs> we want to see them dealt with and judged and punished and everything else. But, hey, God, you know, not me. Don't look at me. Right? So it's important, right, that we allow God to answer his prayers his way. And we have to trust that he loves implicitly our family and friends and the rest of the world infinitely, infinitely, way more than we do. Way more than we do. Don then goes on to mention the second person of the Trinity. Well, let me let me back up. We are to live in faith, obedience, and trust while we wait on his answer. Not the one we put together, not the one we presented, not the one we think is right with PowerPoint presentations and everything else. What we feel God should do, no. 
Okay, no. We have to wait on trust and trust His answer. And part of being a Christian is trusting God to do what's best for myself and for the other person's concerned as well. Right? And deal with them how He's going to deal with them. Eventually, if they stay in the wrong path, they're going to be dealt with eternally. So one way or the other, but God's got to deal with it, okay? The people that were reading this Revelation epistle would have to bet their lives and souls on this. And guess what? One way or the other, so do each and every one of us. So when they're reading the epistles, when they're reading Revelation, they have to trust what they're reading more than the, what they're seeing about around them. The horridness, the persecution, the beatings, the murders, the torture, the destruction of homes and property, the, you know, everything they knew and loved and believed in, they just had to run away from all those things because they were, it was systematically taken away from them. So they had to, and believe it or not, so do we. All these years later, so do we. Because when we don't, we lose our grasp on the reality of God, on the, our grasp of our senses and what, what's going on around us, the true grasp. And we lose people, and we lose our peace, and we lose our focus, and that becomes hell on earth to live like, to live like that. Then John goes on to mention the second person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. In my Bible, it says the seven spirits who are before his throne. The seven spirits who are before his throne. Some of your Bibles might say the sevenfold spirit before his throne. And that one tends to be a little more accurate. Now, when he's talking about the, ten, the sevenfold spirit, Isaiah actually gives us a little bit of an explanation about that. Go with me to Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 3. Now listen to this. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 3. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. The spirit of knowledge and the spirit and fear of the Lord. So that's seven. Okay. And so here we get kind of an explanation of the nature of the spirit of God. Sevenfold as it were. This is not seven individual spirits standing before the throne. But the sevenfold or complete or manifest spirit of God. Letting us know that. The seven being a complete, right? A complete. It seems that the Trinity seems to appear together at the most, most momentous and cosmic acts of God's plan. Let me repeat that. It seems that the Trinity seems to appear together at the most momentous and cosmic acts in God's plan. First of all, at the creation, right? The Trinity is there at the creation. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was, was God, right? That's Jesus. But here in Genesis uh, 1 verses 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, so we know God was there. This concludes part one of Lesson 8, The God of the Book of Revelation. Please join us for the continuance in part two.